what is God's will for your life? It's a pretty big question, right? People often ask this question when they're thinking about making big decisions. Should I move? Should I take this job or that job? Should I get married? And we really want to know, what is God's will for my life? But what's interesting is that most of the time when the Bible talks about God's will for our lives, it speaks not of God holding the secret answers to our big questions. Instead, when the Bible talks about God's will for our lives, it usually is talking about one of two things. Either God's will in saving those who believe in Jesus Christ, or God's will that believers should obey God's word. That is God's will for your life, friends. You should trust Christ, and if you do, you should obey him. And one of the places in the Bible that talks about God's will for our lives is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, which says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for the local church, God's will for believers, is that we should rejoice and we should pray and we should be giving thanks. We are to be joyful, prayerful, thankful people. And I begin with this because as we come to today's passage, the Lord Jesus is going to teach us some things that should cause us to want to labor in prayer and that should make us very thankful and which ought to point us to a robust joy in the Lord. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. This is the last part of the main section of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus commands us to pray. Number two, we're going to see why we should pray. And number three, Jesus is going to draw a moral conclusion from his instruction. So let's start with our first point, in which we see that Jesus commands us to pray. Matthew chapter 7 Verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, this is a pretty famous saying of Jesus. It's one of a handful of such sayings we find in the Gospels where Jesus says, Pray, and then he makes some very strong promises to believers that our prayers will be favorably answered by God. Other sayings of Jesus that fit into this same pattern are found in Mark 11, where Jesus says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Or again, John chapter 14. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And there are other verses like these. How should we understand them? Well, some people have looked at these verses and from them developed what is called word of faith theology. And proponents of word of faith theology use these promises or these verses and they say, well, look, Jesus says he'll give you anything if you ask it in his name. So if you want a mansion, ask for it. If you want a million bucks, ask for it. If you want a miraculous healing, ask for it. And if you have enough faith, God must give it to you. 
Televangelist Kenneth Hagin claimed that Jesus appeared to him and said, quote, If anybody anywhere will say it, do it, receive it, and tell others about it, he will always receive whatever he wants from me or from God the Father. Likewise, televangelist Fred Price said, quote, You can have what you say, have a Rolls Royce faith. So if you say you want a Rolls and you've got enough faith, you'll get one. Or if you get a bad diagnosis and you claim healing and you have enough faith, you will be healed. I heard somebody in a restaurant the other day saying, it's not enough to say, I hope it happens. You have to say, I declare it happens. Is that what Jesus is promising in these verses? That prayer with faith is a means of manipulating God to give us whatever we say? No. Why do I say that? Three reasons. Number one, because this interpretation often reads these verses out of their own context. Yes, in John 14, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. But in the next sentence, he says that this is so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what Jesus is not talking about here is us being glorified through gaining unlimited health and wealth. No, the immediate context of this statement tells us that Jesus promises to answer prayers that glorify the Father. Second, the word of faith interpretation often reads these verses against the rest of the Bible. For instance, 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Friends, prayer is not about us having our will done. It's about us asking God to do his will. Prayer that is in alignment with God's will is prayer that will be favorably answered and prayer that is not in God's will will not be answered. And when I talk about prayer that's contrary to God's will, I'm not just talking here about selfish or immoral prayers. Sometimes we may pray for good things with great faith and earnestness, and we still don't get what we want, right? Here's a good example from the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. All right, so Paul is afflicted by what seems to be an illness, and he says it came from Satan. And Paul wanted healed. And Paul would have good reasons for wanting to be healed, right? Surely this healing would make his ministry more effective. Surely it would cause him to give public glory to God. Surely it would frustrate Satan who had sent this illness upon him. Paul's healing sounds like it ought to be in God's will, right? But when Paul prayed for healing repeatedly, what happened? He wasn't healed. Because God had purposes in allowing this illness to come upon him, purposes that were not in line with Paul's will, but which were in line with God's will to prevent Paul from becoming arrogant. And to show that the real power behind Paul's ministry is not Paul, but the Lord who delights to use weak vessels mightily. So when we look to all that the Bible says about prayer, we, we know the word of faith interpretation is incorrect. Third, we must reject the word of faith interpretation because it would make Jesus into a liar. As the word of faith movement has spread in recent decades and gained countless followers, what have we seen? People who sought wealth in the Lord, uh, asking in faith, they remained poor, right? People who sought healings from the Lord with great faith, 
They remained sick or died, right? Many of us in this room have seen tragic situations where somebody refused medical care because they thought these verses entitled them to a miraculous healing. And no healing came. And they died not only in pain, but spiritually broken and confused, wondering why God had withheld a healing that they thought they were promised. There was a really tragic incident similar to this a few years ago in California, where a very large church, if we can use that term, publicly said they were going to raise a two-year-old girl from the dead. And for a week, they said they were going to raise her from the dead. And they, they put it in newspapers. And after the week ended, she was still dead. What a disaster. Friends, if Jesus is telling us in these verses that he has given us a blank check with his signature on it, enabling us to get whatever we want from the Father, history has shown that to be false. But the good news is that's not what Jesus is saying in these verses. Jesus is not a liar. Jesus always tells us the truth. Instead, it is the word of faith heretics who are liars. Because when read in their immediate context and read against what the whole Bible says about prayer, we can understand these sorts of passages are not about us naming and claiming whatever we want. Instead, prayer is a means that God has ordained to bring his will to pass in this world. So having said that, let's return to our text. So now that we've said what Matthew 7, 7 is not about, let's ask what is it about? What is Jesus telling us to do here? Well, he says, ask, seek, and knock. And I understand this instruction to be about praying. But before we look at these three words, ask, seek, and knock, I want us to consider two things which may not be immediately apparent here, but which will be useful for us to understand Jesus' instruction. Number one, ask, seek, and knock are imperatives. These are commands of Christ, and they are found in the present tense. In Greek, present tense commands carry the force of ongoing action. So Jesus is saying here, keep praying, keep seeking, keep asking, keep knocking. Okay, this is a command to regular prayer. So if we belong to Jesus today, we're to be prayerful people. Prayer is not just something we do on Sundays. It's not just something we do at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night or when we eat some of our meals. Prayer should be a defining feature of our lives. We started today seeing that Paul told the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Find this same idea in Romans 12. Be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is not a small deal in our lives, believing friends. In fact, at the end of Ephesians 6, which is that great chapter where Paul tells us, here's how you withstand the evil day when Satan and his minions attack you. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 18. Be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you hear these verses? Pray without ceasing, constantly, steadfastly, at all times and in everything. Friends, this is a picture of prayer as a regular, critical posture for us if we are believers. So every day, how often do we pray? as we see circumstances unfolding around us, as we read unsettling news, 
as we hear about what's going on with family members or friends or co-workers, when we hear sirens on the road around us, when we feel anxiety, when our Christian brothers and sisters are in distress, friends, this is what we are to do. We are to pray our way through every day by being people of constant prayer. Now, the second thing I want you to, to know here before we jump further into verse 7 is that these same words of Jesus, ask, seek, and knock, are also found in Luke chapter 11. And the way that Luke presents these commands adds another dimension to how we understand this passage. In Luke 11, immediately before Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he tells a parable. He says this, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. You say, well, what's that mean? Okay, this is what Jesus says. Which of you has enough guts to do this? That's the question he's putting to his hearers. He says, it's midnight. A friend unexpectedly shows up at your house and needs a place to stay. He's hungry. You've got to feed him. And you're in first century Galilee, so you can't go to Whataburger. What are you going to do? You go disturb your neighbor. Now, back then, everybody had a pretty small house, like a one-room house. So you bang on the door. You're going to wake up everybody in the house at midnight. Jesus says, which of you has enough guts to do that? This doesn't sound like a very pleasant spiritual experience, right, or social experience. You're going to make your neighbor really mad. You're going to want to avoid your neighbor for the next few weeks. And Jesus says, you know what's going to happen when you knock on his door? At first, he's going to say to you, go away. But Jesus says, if you keep knocking, even though he just said go away, eventually he will give you the food you're seeking. And what's the point? The point is this. Be persistent in prayer. If a cranky, sleepy neighbor who initially says go away to you will relent after repeatedly being asked, what should we expect that our loving Heavenly Father will do if we persistently bring our requests to Him? Will He not be much kinder than that neighbor? Will He not be much more willing to answer us? Friends, we must persist in prayer. Uh, we find some examples of what this looks like in the New Testament. Uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you, the Thessalonians, in our prayers. It's not just that Paul was always praying, but he was always praying about the same things. He was always praying for the Thessalonians. So I think in the same way, we can see from the tense of these commands and the way that Luke uses these commands, that, friends, we too must be people of regular and persistent prayer. But what are we to pray for? Well, a minute ago, we read, Paul says, In everything let your requests be made known to God. Or Peter writes, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The Bible invites us to bring all of our cares to the Lord in prayer. But I think a close look at the three words we find in verse 7 will show us what we should prioritize in our prayers. Why do I say that? Ask, seek, and knock probably don't obviously seem connected to the content of our prayers. At first, I think these words seem like a progression of intensity, right? Seeking seems more intense and energetic than just asking. 
and knocking seems more insistent and demanding than seeking. That's true. That, that is one way these words work. But I also think that these three words, beyond just showing us an, in, a, an intensification of prayer, also speak to the content of our prayers. And I say that because these same terms are found elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, or closely related terms are elsewhere found in the Sermon on the Mount. And when we see how the Sermon on the Mount elsewhere talks about us asking and seeking and what we might be knocking at, I think we do get a much clearer picture of what we should be praying about. So let's start with asking. This same verb has appeared twice so far in the Sermon on the Mount. First in chapter 5, verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you. And this word beg is the same verb we find here for asking. And in this verse, Jesus is commanding believers to share their material goods with those who are in need, particularly their enemies, when their enemies wind up in need. In the same way in chapter 6, Jesus says, uh, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Here, Jesus is warning believers not to pray like pagans. You don't have to use long, flowery prayers to get God's attention. No, his eye is always on his people. And he knows what we need before we ask him. Jesus makes this same point again later in chapter 6, when he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The things our Father knows that we need are framed as food and drink and clothing, the essentials of life. And so while the Bible urges us to bring all of our cares before God, all that would cause us anxiety, the way that Jesus uses this word ask in the Sermon on the Mount seems to primarily be a reference to asking about the essentials of life, the things that we most need to survive. Friends, we should pray about everything, and we should especially pray that God would meet our needs. Jesus taught us this in chapter 6, did he not? Give us this day our daily bread. And this is a, the sort of prayer that we can and should pray regularly and persistently. Now, in the model prayer that Jesus gave us, asking for our daily bread is just one of the six petitions that we find there. It's not the only thing we're to pray about, but we are to pray about it. Ask. But then Jesus adds to ask, seek. What does this get at? Well, this word appears only once in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, right after Jesus says, don't worry about where you're going to get your food or your drink or your clothing, because your Father knows you need these things, Jesus then says in Matthew 6, but seek, same verb, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So our priorities in prayer aren't just about us getting our material needs met. Instead, we are also to have another priority in our prayers. We are to pray for the furtherance of God's kingdom. This also is something Jesus taught us to pray about, right? In the model, prayerfully half of the petitions are about the furtherance of God's kingdom. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. These are things we are to pray about. For God's name to be glorified. For God's kingdom to come in its fullness. For this rebellious world to be conformed to the will of God. More than that, we're told not just to seek God's kingdom, but to seek his righteousness. We said throughout our study on the Sermon on the Mount that this word righteousness, when used in this passage, 
is a reference to living in line with the demands of God. Now, only those who know Christ can live righteously. Only those who know Christ can truly obey the Lord. And being Christ's people, we should pray about our obedience and our disobedience. We should confess our sins. We should pray that God would increasingly conform us to greater Christ-likeness. We should thank God that Jesus' death on the cross has liberated us from slavery to sin and set us free to walk in newness of life. So yes, we should ask about our needs, but we should also seek in prayer God's kingdom and righteousness, and we should do this constantly and persistently. Finally, Jesus says, knock. Now this is a word we don't find anywhere else in the Sermon on the Mount or in the Gospel of Matthew. What might this be pointing us to? Well, we're going to see in next week's passage, as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In the modern world, we typically knock on doors, right? But in the ancient world, sometimes you'd find wooden gates that you'd have to knock on, like to enter a city. And within just a few verses of, of Jesus speaking about knocking, he introduces this idea of a gate. So I don't think that's coincidental. You say, well, what does this get at? We might be surprised that Jesus says knock in the context of talking about the gate, which is a reference to the path of eternal life. After all, knocking in this sequence seems to talk about an intensified pursuit of something. But elsewhere the Bible tells us in Romans 9, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That salvation is not a product of our own labor or striving. And yet, what else does the Bible say? Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Philippians 3, Paul says, very important passage, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I Press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, he says. Friends, there is an appropriate striving towards the goal. That's what these verses say. Friends, we should strive in life and in prayer constantly and persistently. So, far from what the Word of Faith movement claims, in Matthew 7, 7, Jesus is not promising us millions of dollars or a mansion that the Father is obligated to give us. Instead, what we find here is a call to obey Christ and the prayer priorities He has set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to pray about all of our anxieties. We're especially to ask for our material needs. 
More than that, we are to pray for the furtherance of God's kingdom, that we should increasingly display Christ's righteousness. And we are to knock insistently in our striving for holiness in prayer, asking God, God, I want to be with you. Help me. Help me to be the person you want me to be because Christ has died and set me free and my salvation is in him, but you call me to strive for holiness. That is what we are to pray for, friends. But why? Why should we ask and seek and knock? We find the answer to this in our second point now as Jesus tells us. Here's why you should pray. And I think he gives us two reasons. We find the first in verse 8. As Jesus says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now this word for at the beginning tells us this is an explanation of what's come before it. So here is why we should ask, seek, and knock. And the first answer Jesus gives is this. Because your prayers will be answered. The one who asks does receive. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks gets it open. And again, we're not talking about millions and millions of bucks, right? Or billions and billions as Carl Sagan was. No, that's, not, that's not the idea at all, right? The idea is if you're praying about the things Jesus has told you to pray for, he will answer your prayers. This is a truth I worry that many of us miss when we talk about prayer because we're so worried about saying word of faith theology is false, which it is, that we sound fatalistic. You know, God knows what I need before I ask him and God has a will and my prayers can't change God, so prayer is irrelevant. I'll just live by faith and when the bad times come, I'll take my lumps. Friends, that is not what the Bible says. Yes, God knows what we need before we ask him. Yes, God has a will and works things out in line with it. Yes, our prayers cannot generate a change in God. And yet we are still commanded to pray. Prayer is not irrelevant. Why should we pray? Because God has ordained our prayers as a means by which he acts in this world. The, the clearest example of this is in Exodus chapter 32. Israel has just sinned with the golden calf. And God says to Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God says, I'm done with Israel. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. But in the very next verse we read, Moses implored the Lord his God. Moses interceded for Israel. And then in verse 14 we read that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God said he was going to do one thing, Moses prayed, and God did something else. Did Moses change God's mind? Well, God says in Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change. He says to Moses in Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind, has he said, and will he not do it? So no, it's not that Moses persuaded God to change his mind. And it isn't that God's threat to destroy Israel was a bluff. God meant what he said, and God did not change. And yet Israel was spared. Why? I think the issue is this. God said he would destroy Israel, but in his secret will, God apparently decreed that this was contingent, such that if Moses prayed for Israel, it would put Israel in a different situation before God than if Moses did not pray. So Moses' prayer really mattered in what happened. It put Israel in a different position before God, receiving a different outcome from his hand than they otherwise would have received. We find kind of the opposite idea of this in Ezekiel 22.30, where God says, I sought for a man among them, 
who should stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. This time God said, I'll destroy Israel, and nobody prayed, and so Israel stayed in the position of condemnation, and they were destroyed. So friends, prayer matters. There are times where our prayers or our failure to pray generates real consequences in what happens to us and around us. So we need to pray. Ask, seek, and knock, because God really does answer our prayers. Find this same idea in James chapter 4, verse 2. James says you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Prayerlessness leads to one outcome, while prayer often leads to a different outcome. That's not word of faith theology, that's reading comprehension. And that's not saying that asking guarantees an answer, but it tells us if we don't ask, we're guaranteed not to get an answer. But friends, when we ask, God also searches the motives behind our prayers. And because of our motives or some other reason in his will, God may or may not answer us. But often prayerlessness leads to one outcome and prayer leads to another. So pray first because prayers really do get answered. But this leads to the second reason why we should pray, which is that we have a loving and kind Heavenly Father. And Jesus begins to discuss this now with an illustration. Look at Matthew 7, 9. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Jesus says, think about the typical relationship between parents and kids. If a child comes to his dad and says, I'm hungry, usually the dad's going to feed the kid. Right? That's not being a great parent. That's normal parenting, right? That's parenting 101, feed a hungry kid. Now, we know in our society, sometimes there are really wicked parents who don't take care of their kids. And that was doubtless true in Jesus' day as well. But ordinarily, apart from the worst, most wicked deadbeat dads, most dads know to feed their kids when they're hungry. But what most dads also know not to do is not to give a hungry kid something that looks like food but which isn't. That would be terribly cruel, right? And that's where Jesus goes in this illustration. A kid says, Daddy, I'm hungry. The right response is to give him bread, not to give him one of the many pieces of sandstone found in the wilderness that look like bread but which aren't. What's going to happen if a kid bites into a piece of rock? He's going to break his teeth. He's going to be in terrible pain. That's not how a father treats his child. But the kid says, Daddy, I'm hungry. The right response is to give him some fish to eat, not to give him something else that has scales and wriggles around, but which isn't a fish. It's a snake. You don't do that, right? You don't have to be the world's greatest dad to know that. And that's Jesus' point in verse 11. He says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Friends, no matter how great or horrible your dad was, we can all agree on this. Our dads weren't perfect. They were flawed sinners, right? Even at their best, judged against the standard of God, they were evil. Just like we are evil when judged against the standard of God. But if even evil people understand they ought to give their hungry kids food and not break their teeth on rocks or surprise them with a snake, if even evil people understand that, how will our good and kind Heavenly Father treat His children when we bring our needs to Him? One of the biggest truths in the Sermon on the Mount is this. 
If you know Jesus in a saving way, God is your father. You are adopted into his family. Now, that's not true if you've never come to Christ. You're not a part of God's family. And yet, you know what? Even unbelievers experience the kindness of God. We saw this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.45 says, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is kind even to unrepentant rebels in his universe. But if evil people know to be kind to their children, if our Heavenly Father is even kind to wicked rebels in this universe, with what greater degree of kindness will our Father treat his own people, his adopted children, when we ask him for our basic needs, or when we seek to further his kingdom, or when we knock vigorously in pursuit of our, th uh, in our pursuit of the things that pertain to eternal life? Friends, when we pray about these sorts of things, we don't need to worry that our Father is going to treat us with harshness or abuse. I think sometimes believers are so well acquainted with the truth that God is a God of wrath who will condemn impenitent sinners, that we forget the glorious truth that He's also a kind Father who loves His children. Believing, friends, God is not hiding around the next corner waiting to drop an anvil on your head. He isn't eagerly looking to destroy you, hoping to get your hopes up and pull a fast one. No, that's not who he is. He isn't giving us stones dressed as bread. He isn't giving us serpents when we think we're getting fish. He consistently deals kindly with us. He gives us far better than we deserve and far more abundantly than all we could ask or think. Now, I know sometimes we don't feel like that. I know in my life there have been times where I would ask God for something and he didn't give it to me. And I blamed him and I would say, this is wrong, God. This shows you don't care about me or that you're against me. But the book of James warns against thinking like this. James 1 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Or that word can also mean creation. James says the idea that God is indifferent or hostile towards his people is a lie. It is a self-deception. Because the truth is, friends, every good thing that you and I have in our lives is only by God's grace alone. God gives his children good gifts. They might say, well, if that's true, why are the prayers I'm praying so urgently now not getting answered? James says, when you think like that, don't forget that the best good gift God has given you is that by the word of truth, by the gospel, he has brought you to be the first fruits of the new creation. Believing, friends, when you want to grumble against God, and when I want to get grumble against God because we're not getting our prayers answered, it's because we have forgotten he's already given us the chiefest gift. Our salvation in Christ, that's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And in this salvation are innumerable blessings. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons. In Him we have redemption through His blood. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. These are amazing gifts. Every spiritual blessing, 
you've been chosen. You're adopted into his family. You've been forgiven. You're the heirs, the greatest of all inheritances. If you know him, you have the Holy Spirit. Friends, God's settled posture towards us is great generosity. He's already given us so much. And he isn't going to have that posture of kindness towards us one day and change his mind the next. There is no variation or change within him. God always loves and is always kind to his people. You may say, well, yeah, that's true about big theological matters, but what about these prayers I'm praying and not getting answered? Where is God's kindness? And I'd say this, I know from my own life there were times where I was just so desperately angry at God for not answering my prayers. Remember two instances in particular. Uh, when I was very young, I was praying for a relationship with a particular young lady. And, and when that didn't come to pass, I was furious with God. On another occasion, I was likewise furious when I was praying for a job that I didn't get. And, and when these prayers went unanswered, I, just, I, was, I was just so sinfully wrathful about it. But now I look back years later and I say, wow, Ben, like that relationship you thought you wanted, that would have been disaster for you. And she totally went off the rails and became a drug user. Right? That would have been the road to perdition. God delivered me from the road to perdition, and he gave me something far better. A wonderful wife, a wonderful son. That path that I thought I wanted would have deprived me of the great gifts of God. The job I thought I wanted. I would have been working 80 hours a week at the very time I was reading the Bible that God used that to save me. And having that job would have deprived me of the great opportunity to do ministry and be here with you guys, right? God saying no to my prayers back then was a good gift. I didn't see it. I was mad at the time. But I look back and I say, wow, that was the best thing could have happened to me. Because those prayers, what I wanted was totally wrong for me. And I'm sure I'm not the only person with stories like that, right? We all, with some perspective, can look back and say, wow, what I really wanted back then would have been ruinous. Friends, God really does work all things out for, for good for those who love him. And so... Instead of fixating on times when you say, my prayers aren't being answered and getting mad about it, remember your salvation. Remember the times that your prayers went unanswered and it worked out better for you. And remember that every good thing you have in your life right now, the fact you're breathing, the fact you've got a home and a car and friends and a family and a church and a job, and you're in this country and you have the freedom to worship freely and all of that stuff and, and so much more, it all comes from God's hand. As the old song says, count your many blessings and see what God hath done. And Jesus says this too is a reason to pray. Not just because your prayers get answered, but because you have a kind Father who will give you what you need and who will faithfully give you what you really need, who is never going to abusively or maliciously pull a fast one on you. He is our kind Father who gives us good gifts. And so friends, we've got to pray. We come now to our last point in which we see that as a consequence of what he's just said, Jesus now draws a moral conclusion. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Another very famous saying of Jesus. So-called golden rule. Now at first, this might seem totally disconnected from what we've just been talking about. Praying and why we should pray. But this is not as out of the blue as it seems. We know that because this starts... This verse starts with the word so, or therefore. Uh, this is a conclusion from what we've just talked about. So Jesus says, as a conclusion from what he's just told us about prayer, we should be kind to other people. 
Why? How, what is the logic here? How does this follow? I think the answer is this. What Jesus says is we should pray, and we should pray because our Heavenly Father is kind. And now Jesus tells us that as the Father is kind, we too must be kind. We saw this principle earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everybody does that. Instead, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be kind even to those who hate you the most. Why? He says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If we are the Father's adopted children, we should act like our Father. And we said just a few minutes ago, the Father's not just kind to His children. He is kind even to His enemies, giving them sunshine and rain. Our Father's kind to everyone, and we are to emulate the kindness of our Father. In fact, emulating the Father is really the great moral principle of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the standard God holds humanity to, the highest possible standard, his own moral perfection. And Jesus has revealed how hard this standard is to meet. Chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. An astonishing statement in that day. Because back then the scribes and Pharisees were seen as ultra-righteous. But Jesus says, no. They're on a collision course with the wrath of God because they don't measure up to this standard. In fact, we saw in chapters 5 and 6, the scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites, pretending to a righteousness they really didn't have. They fall totally short of God's standard, just as we all do. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except one person. Only one person has met the moral demands of God. Only one person has lived up to the moral righteousness of the Father, and that is the Son. In human flesh. Jesus has the righteousness of God. And Jesus lived out that righteousness perfectly. He lived it out so perfectly he could say in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know that law Israel never could keep? Jesus kept it. The prophets preached those moral sermons, castigating Israel for their sins. Who could live up to that? Jesus did. Jesus did it so perfectly, he could say, all of that in the Old Testament points to me. I'm the fulfillment. Jesus alone satisfied that it is the demands of God and God's word from the Old Testament. In fact, that's how the main section of the Sermon on the Mount began. With Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that means Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. Because if it's all about him, he gets to say what it's really all about. And across chapters 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus has told us what God's demands look like properly or how we should rightly understand the Old Testament, how, how, how God's demands are properly understood. It's not just about outward obedience. It's about inward obedience. It's about practicing our righteousness, doing good deeds to glorify God and not ourselves, loving God and living by faith in Him, treating other people kindly. That's what we've seen over the last two chapters. This is what we're to do believing, friends. And just as he began this whole section back in chapter 5, verse 17, talking about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, now he ends it by returning to the law and the prophets. That's what he says in verse 12 here, right? This is the moral demand. This is what the law and the prophets require. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so not only is this the moral conclusion to today's passage, 
This is really the moral conclusion to like the last 15 sermons we've had in Matthew. Emulate the kindness of the Father. Emulate the Father who is generous to everyone, who treats everyone far better than they deserve. Now, it might surprise you that this is what Jesus says the Old Testament's about. Because usually we think about God's demand only in terms of holiness and not in terms of interpersonal kindness and love. This may at first seem less demanding, but it's not. Because the call to treat others as we want to be treated is the same as the call to love others as we love ourselves. And that's really hard to do, isn't it? This is something we fail to do every day. And Jesus showed us how comprehensively we fail this back in chapter 5. When he said to be hatefully angry is to deserve hell. When he said to be lustful is to deserve hell. When he said seeking an unjustified divorce is adultery. When he said lying is evil or plotting revenge against people or hating your enemies. He says this is all far, this is all far short of God's standard. Chapters 6 and 7, Jesus warned us against hypocrisy. Doing good deeds seeming to benefit others, but really it's all about self-promotion. Or accepting God's forgiveness, but rejecting the idea of forgiving others. Or judging others from a posture of hypocrisy. None of this is loving. It's twisted. It falls short of God's demands. And so all have fallen. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But there's good news, which is that Jesus satisfied the demands of the Father. And Jesus is wonderfully as kind as his Father is. So he, in his kindness, shares his perfect righteousness with his people. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus takes his people's sin and he gives us his perfect righteousness, the very righteousness of God. And more than that, this imputed righteousness that comes to believers is now worked out through our lives as we obey God, as we live righteously in the way that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so believing, friends, despite our sins and our failings, Jesus really does call us to emulate the Father. This is how we're to live. This is the will of God for us. We're to love God. We are to reverence God. We are to seek God in prayer. And we are to love others as we love ourselves. We are to treat others as we want to be treated. We're to be kind as our Father is kind. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Friends, if we are God's children, we are to live out in truth what we really are. If you are a believer, you are a son or daughter of the Father. Reflect His holiness and kindness in everything you do in this life, including how you treat others. When you deal with somebody else, put yourself in their place and say, how would I want them to treat me in this situation? And do that for them. This is the opposite of what we saw last week, right? Where we judge other people for doing the same evil things that we do. Instead, we should love others by treating them in the same way that we would hope they would treat us. And as we do that, we will walk in righteousness. We will walk out the righteousness of God in our lives. And we will give glory to God. So let me conclude with this, friends. Today, if you've never come to Christ, you need to know this. God is not your father. He is kind to you now, but it won't last forever. You need to deal with God because you are in danger of his eternal wrath. Jesus says, knock and keep knocking. You need to knock and say, Jesus, I want to be saved. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ and trust him. But today, if you are a believer, the father is your father. 
Despite your sins, he's accepted you in the Son. He loves you. He is faithfully good and kind to you. So pray to him constantly and persistently about your needs and your spiritual life. And show the love that you receive from him to everyone else that you encounter. And as you do this, you will walk in the righteousness you've received from Christ. 